0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another time to gather. Hope we don't take this time for granted. Every Sunday we get to gather, every Lord's Day, uh, that we get to come together like this and open up God's Word and sing His praises really is a gift, especially today as we talk about God's gifts to us. Uh, This is certainly one of them. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to... Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31 to 39. I began this chapter by quoting one commentator who summarizes the significance of Romans 8. And he's basically going back and compiling all of these different ideas about Romans 8 or comments on the significance of this chapter. He says, "...the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith, the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in a range of mountains, such are some of the metaphors used by interpreters who extol chapter 8 as the greatest passage within what so many consider to be the greatest book in Scripture." And maybe you've experienced that over the last, I think it's been about a month and a half. We've been in Romans 8, and maybe you have seen freshly the riches of God's purposes in Christ, the riches of life in Christ, and freedom in Christ, and what God has done for us through Christ. Today we come to the very top of that mountain peak, to what the theologian John Murray calls the highest rung in the ladder. So if you think about Romans 8 as ascending, going up and up and up, Uh, in many ways Romans is going up, but Romans 8 going up, 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 and then the highest rung we find here at the end of this chapter. This is one of the most comforting and reassuring passages in all of Scripture. Scripture. So let me just start by asking you this morning, are you loaded down? Are you heavy hearted? Maybe not, but maybe you are. You came here this morning and your shoulders feel uh, pushed down. Your heart feels down in the dirt. Maybe you are loaded down by sufferings of various kinds, trials of various kinds. Maybe you are loaded down by a sense of your sin, a sense of your sinfulness, that indwelling sin uh, that you've seen in your heart or you have experienced or those you love have experienced in your actions, sense of your own sin. Or maybe you're just loaded down in general by fear, fear of what's to come. And I think what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, by virtue of the fact that you are here, under the the teaching and reading of this passage of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, come and drink from this passage. All who are burdened, heavy laden, to use Jesus' language in the Gospel of Matthew, all who are heavy hearted, come here to this text and drink. Let me ask it this way, Christian, particularly you who are a Christian, are you wallowing in guilt? Are you doubting God's love for you for whatever reason? Are you wondering, you know, you wouldn't say this, and at, a, at the deepest level you don't think this, but on the surface and in 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 difficult times, are you wondering whether you're really going to make it to the end? Whether you're really going to cross the finish line? You're really going to receive all the promises that God has for us in His Word. Once again, come and drink. And if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer here this morning, I want you to know that this is what you are rejecting. What we're going to see this morning, this security, this firmness of ground, this unshakable hope, this immense, infinite love, this is what you're rejecting when you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are choosing temporary pleasures, fleeting pleasures, things that can never satisfy your heart. Things that will never provide meaning for your life. Choosing those over these infinite riches of security and love by God in Jesus Christ. The title for the sermon this morning is Safe in God's Hands. And this is part one. We're going to begin uh, this passage this week, and then we'll finish it up next week, Lord willing. Safe in God's hands. Chapter 8 of Romans has filled our minds with assurance. I mean, so much material here. And uh, several people have come up and, and mentioned how God has used Romans 8 just in the last month and a half to reassure, to comfort, to strengthen, to help them do what the writer of Hebrews so often, so often talks about, to hold fast to your confession of hope without Wavering. Romans 8 is meant to do that, so it is, of course, no surprise that when we go through it as a church, God does that in our hearts. He, it has that effect. It's an amazing thing as a preacher to go through passages of Scripture and know what the author's intention is and therefore what the intention of the Holy Spirit is in the text being authored and to, to know that it is meant to have this particular effect on the people of God and then to actually see it have that effect on the people of God in private conversations, in elders' meetings, and in one-on-one talks with people, in gospel community group, and in our praying together to see what God does through his word, his life-giving, life-sustaining word. So chapter eight has filled our minds with assurance, no longer condemned in Christ, that's how it began, set free and led by the Spirit of God, calling out to God as Abba, Daddy, dear Father, and awaiting our guaranteed inheritance, not an inheritance that we might receive if we work hard enough, not an inheritance that uh, is is pretty sure, but a tad bit shaky, but an un failing inheritance, a guaranteed inheritance, one for which we've already received a pledge and the first fruits in our very hearts, knowing that the sufferings of this life are nothing in comparison with our future glory, that nothing you could experience in this life, no matter how painful, could ever compare in magnitude to the glory that God has provided and will provide for us one day Through Christ, being assured of the Spirit's work of intercession in the midst of our weaknesses, we don't pray as we should. We don't know what to pray. We often do not know God's will, and we never know God's will perfectly. God's precious Holy Spirit is there all the while, making intercessions for us in the midst of our absolute ignorance. That all things work for our good and that our ultimate salvation is part of an unbroken chain that goes back to the love of God before the world began. That's what we've been looking at so far in this lofty mountain peak chapter of Romans 8. This garden of Eden. This tree of life in God's word. And now we come Today, to these words in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, interpreters have debated what Paul means when he says these things. So as we start in our verse 4 today, in our passage for today, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What exactly is Paul referring to? It's it's important as we're going into it because he's responding to these things and he's building on that in order to provide more content for our security and assurance. So what does Paul mean? Well, he may be referring to the unbroken chain just mentioned in verses 29 and 30. So he may be referring to the immediate context. God, through Paul, has just assured us that those whom God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, unbroken chain, going all the way back to the unmerited love, covenantal love of God in Christ before the world began. He he may be building on all of that as he goes into those few verses as he goes into this passage. Or he may be referring to everything he has discussed since chapter one, verse 16. So some have said, well, at the very beginning of uh, Paul's letter, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So it's the gospel itself that has been unfolded for us and unpacked for us with all of its facets and dimensions since chapter one, verse 16. And Paul is putting the capstone on all of it. Or, finally, probably the best explanation, Paul may have in mind everything covered in chapters 5 through 8. I think that's probably the best explanation for this. This seems the most likely because of all the similarities between the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 8. And I had Trey read that. It's it's rare that during our scripture reading, I have us read a passage from the same book that we're in. I try to avoid doing that. But the reason we did that this morning is because I want you to see these brackets. Those first 11 verses of Romans 5 are very parallel in their content, what they're saying to these to this last paragraph in Romans 8. And so the beginning of Romans 5 and the end of Romans 8 act as brackets holding all of this content together. But either way, these are the sorts of things that commentators debate about endlessly. But either way, whatever Paul is referring to with these things, we know that at the most basic level, when Paul says these things, he means God's grace in Christ. God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And in light of that, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? You know, we need to hear that today because I think oftentimes we are people pleasers, right? It, what really matters is whether so-and-so is for us or these people are for us. We care so much, some more than others, but all of us struggle caring so much what our peers think of us, what our superiors think of us, what even those under our charge think of us. We are afflicted often with such anxiety over the eyes of men instead of living before the face of God. If God is for us, Paul says, who could possibly be against us? In other words, we are forever safe in the hands of God. I think that's the big idea. God for us, period. And then he explains that. He unpacks that in these verses. So that's why I have entitled the sermon Safe in God's Hands. Much like Jesus describes In John chapter 10, after explaining how he is the shepherd of the sheep, he's the good shepherd, Jesus says these beautiful words, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Going back to the idea of knowing us from last week. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I think the truth that Jesus is conveying there in John 10, at the end of John 10, is the same thing that we find here at the end of Romans 8. We are safe. People of God, we are safe in the hands of God. You could go ahead and stand at this time for the reading of God's Word. In a couple weeks, we'll only have a, a few verses to read, but today we have quite a few verses to read. Not all of Romans 1 to 8, or all of Romans 5 to 8, but we are going to read all of Romans 8. So I want you to see the logic, once again, very important. I want you to see Paul's logic as we come into verses 31 to 39, see what it is that Paul has been saying and how this really does serve as a capstone on all the glory and riches of our assurance in Christ. This is God's holy word, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Purpose For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then for our text for the next two weeks. What then shall we say to these things? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Some of the most comforting powerful, soul-fortressing words in all of the Bible right there at the end of Romans 8. Let's go to God in prayer. Let's thank Him for this food for our souls. Let's thank Him for the assuring us, uh, the comforting us that, he's, that, that we expect Him to do. We anticipate him, that He will use His word in this way today. He'll assure us in ways we don't even know we need to be assured. So let's pray and ask him for that. Father, thank you for this time in this very special passage. God, all of your scriptures are inspired. Every word, every jot and tittle, it is unbreakable. It cannot be broken, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John. We thank you, God, that your word is true, that it makes wise the simple, that it rejoices the heart, that it is Uh, more precious than gold, than much fine gold, that it is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. God, what sweetness we find in these precious words that meet us in our frailty, meet us in our sinfulness. They meet us in the midst of all our trials and accusations against us. Lord, we just thank you for what you do for your children, how you sit us down, And you speak these words to us just as a father or a mother would encourage his or her child. Lord, you you bring us, you put us on your lap and you speak these words comfortingly into our ears reminding us of who we are, how we are loved and what is coming for us in the future. God, we praise you for this. We ask this morning that you would do this work in us. God, we all need to hear from our Father these comforting words, and we pray, God, that you would bring us, uh, humble us, Lord, help us see our sinfulness, but help us run to the Savior as we do. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So as we consider this morning our safety in God's hands, our security in Christ, as Paul puts it in the first verse, that God is for us. We see that this involves three things, and we will cover the first two this week, and the third we'll look at next week. Uh, verse 35 and following really needs its own treatment, so we're going we're to look at that next week. But the first two, uh, I'll go ahead and go through all of these. The giver will finish, the accuser will fail, and the love will That is what we find in these verses, which establish for us this safety that we have in God's hands. The same idea we find there in John chapter 10 from the mouth of our good shepherd. By the way, it is the heart of our good shepherd that we see so intimately displayed, so transparently open for us in John chapter 17. We see Jesus there in the high priestly prayer, and he asks the Father that we would be with him to see his glory. We see that the good shepherd is the one who brings us to this glory. And it's because of his love, his love for his sheep. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the giver will finish. Look with me at verses 31 to 32. The giver will finish. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here we get the same kind of argument that we found at the the beginning of chapter 5. I was saying before that there are several parallels between the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 8. And this is the most obvious one, the same kind of argument that we find in these two passages. It is called an argument from the greater to the lesser. From the greater to the lesser. In chapter 5, Paul says, if God sacrificed his own Son for his enemies. That's breathtaking. God sacrificed his own son for his enemies. That's how Paul starts in Romans 5. If God did that, the greater thing, the greatest thing, how will he not now save from his wrath those who are now reconciled to him as friends? Those who have peace with him who have access to him, how will he not save them from his wrath if he gave up his own son for them while they were bitter enemies? Rebel sinners. He's done the greater. Certainly now he'll do the lesser thing. And that's what we find here in Romans 8. If God gave up his own son for us, same Crucicentric, same cross-centered message, but being understood a little differently here, being applied a little differently. If God gave up his own son for us, how will he not give us everything else? He's given us the greatest. How will he not give the rest? The one who gave the greatest will certainly finish giving everything else. The giver will finish. The language of giving is everywhere in these two verses. So that's the big idea. I wanted to start there just to kind of get the whole, the, the, the whole of these verses in mind. That's the big idea that Paul is trying to get across here in especially verse 32. That's Paul's logic. But now I want to go a little deeper and make several observations on what Paul is saying here in detail. So I have four of them. First, consider the magnitude of this greatest gift. Uh, That's at the center of Paul's logic. He's saying the greatest gift has been given. Lesser gifts, no big deal. The greatest gift. So what is this greatest of all gifts? The magnitude of this greatest gift. The language here brings us back to Genesis chapter 22. Remember when Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. Remember the opening words. God uses them very, very carefully. This is what the Lord says to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Son, only son, beloved son. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Your son, your only son, whom you love. Love. This is, we could categorize this language as the most precious. The most precious. And God is reminding Abraham of that. In all of his life, all that God has done in his life, all that lies ahead for him, all that he has waited for, housed in this most precious one. And God says, Essentially, I am more precious than that gift. Take him and sacrifice him and trust me. That's what God is doing in Genesis 22. Abraham is told to lay this precious one on the altar. Well, we know that story. God stopped Abraham at the last minute. But God stopped Abraham. He did not end up sacrificing his son, his only son, his beloved son. But God the Father did. God the Father did just that. And that's exactly what Paul is bringing out here. That's Paul's point in verse 32. The love between the persons of the Trinity is inconceivable to us. And here's the amazing thing is the love that is between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the love between the persons of the Trinity, we participate in that love. We are brought into that love and have that very love poured out into our hearts. And that's the love that we see between Christians and that we will see perfectly one day between us and the triune God and between all of us with each other. But it is still inconceivable, especially as we still live in our mortal bodies, to use Paul's language. This love is inconceivable, but God has given us a picture of that love between a parent and a child. We know that marriage is a picture of the gospel, the relationship between Christ and his church. The relationship between a husband and his wife is analogous to the relationship between Christ and his church, which tells us that God has embedded in all human societies a picture of gospel truth in marriage. Likewise, God has embedded in all societies, among pagans and Christians alike, a picture of this gospel truth of the love between the father and his son. We see it. If you're a parent, you experience just a little inkling, a little finite, imperfect participation of that love that the father has for his son. And it was this very son, his only beloved son, whom he gave up. Under no compulsion and reflecting on no merit of ours. He gave him up to save us. There is no costlier sacrifice. There is no greater gift. What could God possibly give that would be greater than this? A heavenly body? How does that even compare? A new earth? A new heaven? What is that in comparison to his own son whom he gave up and sacrificed for sinners like us? No bliss, no glory, no temporal or eternal gift could ever compare to this one, this most precious of gifts. So we, see, we have to see the magnitude of the greatest gift. A second observation that we need to make is consider what Christ was given over to. It wasn't just that God gave us his son. Here's the gift of my son for us to know him and love him and experience him. No, he sacrificed him. Consider what Christ was given over to. If Genesis 22 is the picture, Isaiah 53 is the explanation. And in verse 10, the prophet writes this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's what happened to Jesus. He was crushed. He was crushed. God, the Father, gave his son up to this crushing death. Bearing sin and shame, absorbing curse and wrath, that's what Christ was given over to. Christ, God's only precious son, his eternal son, all-powerful word of God, second person of the Trinity, was given over to be beaten by sinful human beings. Beaten and killed and cursed and mocked and spit on by wicked people like us, by God's rebellious people Israel, and by the idolatrous Gentiles described at the end of Romans 1. God gave up his son to be crushed by his wrath and to be handed over to abuse and murder by sinners. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood He put him forward as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice in our place. You wonder why we gather and sing. Hello? You wonder why we gather and celebrate as Christians. It is because God has done this for us in Christ. Do Do you feel the weight of that in your heart? To be a Christian is to experience imperfectly the weight of this wondrous gift. So Paul is asking his readers to consider the magnitude of the gift, both in how precious the Son was to the Father, that's the first part of it, but also to consider what the Son endured when he was given up. So when we consider the greatness of the gift, we must consider who it was exactly who was given up and what he was given up to. Then we see. A third observation. Christ was given up for us all. He was given up for us all. This makes God's gift personal Christian. Very Personal. It's not just that the father gave up his son in the way I've just described for a nebulous people in the abstract. Yes, we know that Christ died for his bride as a, as a corporate unity, for his sheep as a corporate flock. This is, of course, true. He died for his body, the church. But at the same time, Christ did this. The Father gave him up for each of us, for all of us. For Paul and every single Christian in Rome who was reading this letter, many of whom would soon be burned alive, fed to wild beasts, killed by gladiators under the emperor Nero, for those Christians and for every Christian, In the last two millennia of the church, for every single Christian in this room, for you, for every believer since Abel, since Adam and Eve, but for you, Christian, God gave this precious gift, a gift for you. Say your name because Christ knows your name Christ knew your name when he suffered and died for you. The Father knew your name when he sent his own son. And the Father knew your name when he chose you before the foundation of the world in Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain. It is a personal thing. Once again, if you're an unbeliever, maybe you understand a bit more why we gather and do this. Why we gather and sing these praises to our King. A final observation, all things are now ours in Christ. As we finish up this section, all things are now ours in Christ. We await the inheritance of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We know that the whole earth will be ours. Whatever you make, of the promises to Abraham regarding the land of Canaan and the future fulfillment of those promises in a millennium here on earth, a future reign of Christ here on earth. We have different views on those things. We'll be talking about some of that as we go through Romans 9 through 11. Whatever we are to make of those promises to Abraham, to his physical ethnic descendants with regard to the land of Canaan. This we know ultimately is that the whole earth belongs to the people of God. The whole earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who know Christ. We await future glorification with Christ as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All of this is ours. But it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, Paul tells us that this giving of all things has already begun. So when we read here, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, I think we are to primarily understand in the context all that's going to be given to us when Christ returns and we are glorified. I think in the context here, that's how we are to understand that, primarily. But it's interesting when you see Paul, the same author here, describing what we have in 1 Corinthians 3. Let me read it to you. So let no one boast in men. Maybe you've read this before and it's left you scratching your head a little bit. Let no one boast in men. So some people are saying that they're like a little fan club for Apollos. You got a little fan club for Peter, a little fan club for Paul. And then some people have said they're just a fan club of Jesus. They've just reduced Jesus to the other guys. And and it's it's all messed up. And this church is really messed up. But you got these different fan clubs for these different preachers. And this is what Paul says. Let no one boast in men. Don't boast in some sort of identity with this particular person. And in a, in a, in a, let me just say this, i got to pause here. In, in a world of podcasts, maybe that's what you do. You know, maybe you're a Tim Keller writer, a John MacArthur writer, a John Piper writer, whatever. You've got a person by whom you define yourself and, and whatever they say is what you do or whatever they say is what, what you say and, and that's how you kind of characterize yourself. You're not one of those, you're one of these. It's the same thing. That's exactly what Paul is speaking against here in 1 Corinthians 3. Let no one boast in men. And here's the beautiful thing. This is actually my main point. That was all a digression. This is my main point. For all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ's is God's. Well, they're, they're, they're all yours, because everything's yours, Christian. Don't you know that? In Christ, you're an heir of the whole world. Everything belongs to you, all ready. It, it reminds me a lot of Abraham in Genesis, right? There he is, just kind of sojourning in the land of Canaan. He's got tents. He's living in tents the bunch of smelly animals, moving back and forth, responding to famine, responding to war, bumping into these local folks, just trying to get a cave. I just need a cave to bury my wife. And a well, well to have water. There he is, sojourning in the land, looking like Nothing more than a foreigner and a stranger. And all the while, Abraham owned that land by divine right. That was Abraham's land already in the mind of God. He just had to pilgrim through it and his descendants until God made it a realized possession. But it was his already And that's the case for us. All things are already ours. We haven't realized it yet. We haven't obtained it yet, but it's coming. Every blessing we have, we need to see also, is mediated through Christ. Only through Christ. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice that. God's not just Santa Claus. He's not just giving out things. He's not just uh, going out there handing out gifts to people. All gifts in Christ. There's nothing but wrath outside of Christ. There is nothing but judgment outside of Christ. There is nothing but death and flood and ruin and torment outside of Jesus Christ. But in Christ, how will he not also graciously... Give us everything. And in fact, he already has. So that's the first aspect of our safety in God's hands. The giver who gave the greatest will certainly give the rest. Now we move to our second point this morning, and and that is the accuser will fail. The accuser will fail. Look at verses 33 to 34. This is where we'll finish up this morning. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, Paul faced many adversaries, opponents, accusers in his gospel ministry. Paul was accused of all kinds of things. I mean, we saw some of that already in Romans 3. As Paul, Paul's being accused of preaching an antinomian gospel. Basically, just do whatever you want. Paul is being accused by false apostles in the church in Corinth. He's being mistreated while imprisoned, probably in Rome, as he describes to the Philippians. People preaching Christ out of hatred for Paul. There's tension with his fellow gospel workers. And we read in the pastoral epistles, he's even abandoned by some of those guys who were closest to him. Paul endured a lot. But he had many opponents, many accusers. We read in 1 Corinthians 16:9, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Everywhere Paul went, he faced adversaries, from the pagans and from the Jews, and from the legalists, the Judaizers, and from the antinomians, and from false apostles within the church who thought Paul was a nobody. Or even well-meaning Christians who thought Paul was inferior to Apollos or Peter or whomever else. Many adversaries. But this is not just the case for Paul in the practicalities of his apostolic ministry. All Christians are constantly under attack from accusers of various sorts. Those who bring charges against us those who try to unsettle our confidence as God's elect, as God's chosen ones, as those who are recipients of the golden chain. And I won't won't go much deeper into election. We talked about that last week. Basically, the elect stands for those for whom Romans 8, verses 29 to 30 apply. We face many... Accusers, the flesh, the world, the devil, our indwelling sin, even our consciences, accusations abound. Revelation 12.10 says that uh, Satan is called the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. If you want to get uh, an illustration of how Satan, the slanderer, which is what his name means... Uh, If you want to get a sense for what what it is he's about, read the beginning of Job. That's what he does. He accuses and accuses and accuses. He loves to make non-Christians think they are fine. And he loves to make Christians think it will never be fine. He's the accuser. So there is no shortage of accusers, And given our sinfulness, there is no shortage of true charges. Isn't that the awful thing? Is that, that these, these accusations that came against Christ were totally unsubstantiated. He was sinless. He was innocent of all the charges. Not so in practice with us. We actually are sinners. There is no shortage of things for which we could be accused. And yet, Paul's point here is that no charge against us can possibly stick. Not a single charge. Why? Because the final verdict belongs to the judge. And he also happens to be the one who justifies sinners by faith in Christ. In Christ The judge has justified. The judge has declared us righteous. The judge has pardoned us. He has declared us innocent, free of all guilt. He has charged us free of all charges forever. Or declared us free of all charges forever. But Paul continues, who can condemn us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And now he asks, who can condemn us? Answer, no one. Why? Because Christ was condemned in our place. Condemnation has already happened for us. Condemnation did not happen to us, but it happened for us. It happened on our behalf. Christ is the substitutionary sacrifice. He's the substitute. Christ is put in our place Condemnation has been dealt with on our behalf. In Christ, there is no more condemnation to be given out. Outside of Christ, There is an overwhelming avalanche of condemnation that will fall on every single person. That's the reason why we read things like at the end when Christ returns, that people will cry out that the mountains fall on them. It would be better to be squished by a mountain than to endure the wrath of Almighty God. It would be better, Jesus says, for Judas never to have been born. Than to betray Christ and endure God's wrath for that sin. Whoever causes the least of these to stumble be better if a millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Hell is real. God's wrath is real, and it is serious, and it is a consuming fire, far worse than anything you could ever dread or imagine in any horror movie or in all of your imagination. It is far worse than that. And it is for all outside of Christ, but for none inside of Christ. For none. For none. Listen to how Romans 8, 3 describes this. By sending his own son In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, listen to what God did, he condemned sin in the flesh. So if you're a Christian, sin in the flesh has already been condemned or you could say sin has already been condemned in the flesh, the flesh of Christ. He's already taken it. There are no charges and no condemnation upon us. We are free in Christ. And so as those with indwelling sin, what do we do? I mean, we sin. Well, we fight sin by the spirit and we confess it with confidence in his forgiveness. Romans 8:13 and 1 John 1:9. 1, we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you've got to love how Paul stacks up everything in our favor in these verses. He's not done. He's not done. He could have just left it there. No charges because God is the justifier. No condemnation because Christ has been condemned in our place. But he doesn't leave it there. That would have been fine. Thank you, Paul. That's very encouraging. That's very assuring. But Paul is not content To leave it there. He ascends even further. Not only did Christ take our condemnation, but as the raised and exalted Lord of all, he forever lives to advocate on our behalf before the throne of God. He died in our place, and he now stands in our place as high priest. Forever. Hebrews 7:25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, your sins this morning, yeah, this morning, your sins last night, even during this service. In your own heart and mind, he always lives to make intercession for us. 1 John 2:1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't sin, is the message of the New Testament. Go and sin no more. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our advocate. The righteous one reigns and serves today as our advocate. So Christian, that's your safety. That's your security. Non-Christian, that's what you don't have. That's what you don't have. And what I pray today, you will by God's grace eagerly seek. Knock. Knock and knock and knock until your knuckles are worn to the bone until the one who hears our knocking answers. First, how can the one how can the one who gave the greatest gift not give the rest? And second, what or who can possibly render us guilty before the God who justifies and the Christ who took our place and lives forever as our advocate. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. The giver will finish. The accuser will fail. And next week, we'll see the great culmination of all of this, that the love will hold. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your faithfulness to your promises. Lord, you are true. You are true. Just as Abraham's servant when he went back to Abraham's family and he saw your faithfulness and your answer to his prayer even before he had finished praying, how he praised you for your faithfulness your loving kindness. God, this is who you are. Lord, you have been merciful to us in Jesus Christ and your mercy is undying. You will never let us go. You will hold us fast in your hands and in the hands of your Son because of the death and intercessory work of your Son who lives now before your face, Father. Lord, we thank you for what we have encountered in your word this morning. We ask that it would have the effect of reassuring us that we would uh, shed fear, that we would shed guilt, that we would fight our sin ruthlessly, but always in light of these precious truths and these assurances from your word. Thank you now, Lord, that we get to experience the Lord's Supper as we Meditate on what you have done through Christ. As we meditate on the blood that binds us in this new covenant, Lord, we pray that as we remember Christ, that our hearts would be lifted up to great confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.